I think I've met most of you. I'm Jesse Moran from the Division of Critical Care, Pediatric Critical Care, and I'm going to give you kind of a revamped lecture, a respiratory failure lecture that I give the PEDS residents that's kind of stilted more towards the initial management, though I left a little bit of the um, kind of the ventilatory goals because I think for some of the most critically ill kids, it's always going to be in their best interest to get on a ventilator in the emergency department rather than being bagged. And so thinking about how we would make that transition is um, important. So it's kind of in a case presentation form where there are questions asked. So I'll have to call on people if people don't speak up. So people who I know will be in more. more. The first one is a 12-year-old black female with past medical history of asthma who presents to the ER with respiratory distress. This is actually a patient I took care of in my fellowship on a number of occasions. Her chief complaint was she can't stop coughing. She started to turn blue, and her mom called 911. Her vital signs when you go in the room to see her is what you have, pulse of 147, blood pressure 143 over 76, respiration's 36, and temp is 38.1. And your initial observations are that she's frightened appearing, she's overweight, she has marked respiratory distress and can only speak one to two words at a time. Her oxygen saturations are 87% on a 40% pace mask that the ambulance put on her on the way in. Your initial exam, um, well, let's go back to this and, and somebody speak up and tell me what about her vitals just as you're walking in the room and seeing your first impression of her before you lay the stethoscope on and you have her vital signs, what are the most concerning signs to you? Her heart rate and respiratory rate. Yeah, so both her heart rate and respiratory rate are pretty abnormal. Um, what else? <laughs> Right, so the speaking in bigger kids, you know, with asthma and pretty significant respiratory distress, a lot of them won't even be tachypnic. They can be in terrible shape, and you look at them and don't try to talk to them, and they're breathing 18 or 20. She's already breathing in the 30s, and she can't get a whole sentence out. And then the other thing I always, you know, if, if teenage age kids look frightened about their breathing, that's a pretty... You know, that's a good sign for you that you've got trouble. They've got that kind of, you know, what we call the panicked, air-hungry look. That's a good sign that things are not great. Your initial exam, few expiratory wheezes are heard, but very little air movement, extremely prolonged expiratory phase. Her inspiration seems clear. Cardiovascular exam is warm with good pulses, tachycardic. And you get a VBG, 7.12. PCO2 of 89, PO2, so VBG is 33, base deficit of minus 6. So what is this patient's problem and what do you do now? She's failure to ventilate. So she has failure to ventilate, probably from? Asthmaticus. Status asthmaticus. And what would be your first steps here? So some aggressive continuous bronchodilator therapy. What else? Steroids, fluids, mag, an early call for mag. What else? She's on 40% face mask. What's that? You could try BiPAP, and I would always just put them to 100% oxygen, right? So if you're air hungry, if you're even a little bit hypoxic, you'll have a sense of air hunger. And in asthma, there's just no negative to putting someone on 100%. So increase oxygen to um, FiO2 to, to 1, take away the component of hypoxemic air hunger, get IV access right away. 
albuterol nebs continuously. And I think this is something that <clears throat> you guys tend to do well. You know, don't just, the, the mode is that the respiratory therapist comes in and gives one neb and walks out. And this is someone that you want to say, just come on in and park yourself here at the bedside or mix them up. I mean, there's a kind of a, um, a bias here against continuous nebs, it seems like in general. And we're t it seems like that's changed over the last several years. Just go ahead and mix up the canister. That started a little bit because um, one of our senior pulmonologists has a fairly fixed belief that you lose it all in the tubing. And he's kind of biased the pediatrics residents against putting people on continuous. And so when I came, we always just gave them neb after neb after neb. And certainly the fastest thing they can do is mix up a single neb and just sit there and give two or three of those in a row. But there's just no reason not to batter this person initially with albuterol nebs. And then I am fairly aggressive believer in a terbutaline as a try to, you know, stave off intubation. And so, as you probably know, you can either give it sub-Q or IV. I don't actually know the sub-Q dose, but IV, the, the pediatric dosing books say 10 mics per kilo. I give two mics per kilo over five minutes, and then you can keep repeating that while you're waiting for an infusion. And if someone's really tight where inhaled bronchodilators may really not be getting quite to the source, aggressive terbutaline can help you a lot. Now, the dosing range of the infusion is very, very wide, and I think a lot of the toxicity is very age dependent. So in little babies, up to eight, we really never see, you know, we see them be agitated and feel bad. I think everybody on lots of beta agonists feels terrible. But we don't see um, cardiac toxicity. We don't tend to see ectopy. We don't see heart rates that are in a range we're uncomfortable with. In the teenage age range, I would tend to start at 0.5 and go up a little more gingerly. But certainly, someone like this, you could give them a two mic per kilo um, bolus IV, start them on a 0.5 drip at the same time that you're starting continuous NEBS. And in someone that your first blood gas shows re respiratory failure, you know, start them both at once. Now what about the additional therapy? I think getting the IV dose of steroids in as fast as you can is critical because I'm going to talk a little tiny bit about pathogenesis and that's really going to be more important than any of the other drugs you pick. The mag sulfate, as you know, kind of whether it's a definitive therapy remains fairly um, not figured out. I was in my fellowship, we, I participated with RER in a long term in a, you know, placebo-controlled MAG study, and we were unable to show significance, and there have been some scattered studies where people have really become believers. I am still not a believer that it's going to stave it off, but I do think if you're about to um, think about intubating someone, you might as well use every avenue that you have. The problem is it takes a second IV, so if you have one IV, I'd always pick terbutaline over MAG. Um, but if you don't, if you have two, then I'd put MAG on. And I think in general, picking a bigger dose, giving it slow, getting it started. Um, the anticholinergic agents, there are people who are swear by these. I think there's little data that in the acute situation they're going to help. But again, why not put it in? And then what about theophylline? Our pulmonary group is still a fairly theophylline-heavy interested group. So there are lots of the significant asthmatics that are on theophylline. I am not really a believer in theophylline being life-saving, and I think that before we had TURB, when people were on isoprol and theophylline, everybody was terribly sick, and I think a lot more kids got intubated. So I, I would say, again, if you have plenty of IVs, is it going to hurt to put them on theophylline and use yet another mechanism? Probably not, but the therapeutic window is tiny, and it is very easy to get someone overdosed and sick on this. And the combination of TURB and theophylline, I think that's certainly the case. The other thing I would say about terbutaline, and, and Chuck may be able to comment on this, but, but because of the way the vials are made, 
it takes a long time to make up the infusion from a pharmacy. So there's not, they're not just drawing it out. They have to break open a whole bunch of vials for big people. And so think about it right away and order your infusion. And you know, if you don't use it, of course, that's not the end of the world. But it isn't a quick thing to make up, like you know, getting a dopamine drip or something. So are you going to intubate this patient? Her repeat VBG after albuterol nabs, let's say a half an hour of nabs, steroids, oxygen, and you're just starting on your turb drip is 7.1482, and your base deficit is minus 9. What do people think? Intubate, watch. Let's see what she looks like. How tired she is with tuber on the number. Okay. So be ready, but people are saying, looking at the patient, anyone, anyone push to intubate her now? Good. I mean, I think that's the take-home point for asthma, and I think that in general, we do well at this in terms of watching these people, and that's the plus we have of sitting in this kind of an institution where we know we're going to be able to intubate the patient, um, uh, you know, when we want to. So I have kind of made a list of what I think are indications for intubation in status asthmaticus. Hypoxemia on an FiO2 of 0.8 to 1. So most asthmatics may have rapidly and very seriously rising PCO2s and they're going to have completely normal um, or very little oxygen requirement. Now there's some that have big mucus plugging components and, and may worsen their VQ matching when you put them on terbutaline, right? So you may actually make them hypoxemic as you start therapy, but not many of them are hypoxemic. And the ones who are this degree of hypoxemia, I would say it's a lot, I'd be a lot quicker to put the tube in because the whole kind of theory behind not intubating for a pH or a PCO2 is that nothing bad is going to happen. You're sitting there at the ready, you have the drugs ready. If they become um, more obtunded or stop breathing, you're going to intubate them, you know, and you would have made them stop breathing to do that anyway. So they're really, the theory behind waiting is that you're not going to let anything bad happen. In this situation, they might have a bad hypoxemic spell where, there's where there might be some damage. So I think if they're hypoxemic, I would be more tempted to intubate them. So this is kind of the, the hedge, worsening respiratory acidosis with maximal medical management. And I think that that is for each person to decide in this situation what's worsening and when have you seen the effect of your maximal medical management. So if I'm sitting on this patient and their PCO2 stays in the 80s and they're talking to me, um, it's kind of a good one there. <laughs> I know. I felt like uh, it's about to, Dad's just gotten married or something. Maybe I don't know about it. Um, so um, if their PCO2 is stable or even rising slightly, but they're talking to you and you're still short of when the steroids would have taken their effect or you're still getting some of these extra ancillary things on board, I would absolutely agree with waiting on them being ready to go. So here's the point that you were getting at, somnolence or obtundation from CO2 retention, not a specific pH or PCO2. And um, there used to be a little girl who came through here all the time um, and has finally gotten better somehow. And one Christmas, my um, first Christmas that I worked here, we just sat there on Christmas Eve and stared at her as her PCO2 rose. And she was so used to this happening that she was talking to us 100, 110, you know, and we were kind of waiting for therapy. And she has this, had this strange history that she would just suddenly break, not like normal. I mean, like, and it would be gone. And she was on 60% oxygen, and we just rode out the night. All her drugs drawn up to intubate her, and eventually she got up to 110 and just slowly started coming back down, never so obtunded 
that we felt like we had to intubate her, always making reasonable effort and able to be woken up. Um, now, I think in a lot of cases, this is very different from the advice that we would give someone in the Atumla ER, right? And so I think we talk a lot about what we can do because we're sitting here, we know we can um, put in a chest tube if there's a sudden pneumothorax easily, we're confident that if something happens in our intubation skills, there's an anesthesia person in there. But I think if you're a pediatrician in the autumnal ER, or even if you're an ER doctor in the autumnal ER and there's a lot going on, maybe you're going to make a decision a little bit sooner. And so that's where this hedge goes in terms of what pH. And then I think the decision about transport and when to intubate is a very hard decision. Um, in general, if you're already an hour or so into aggressive beta agonist therapy and things are worsening and you're about to get in a helicopter, I would say it's not a bad idea. You know, the, the problem is, as we're going to talk about, you can make people worse and you can have more complications of intubation. So better to intubate in a controlled way, be sure you've got the tube in the right place and things are going well, than to have to do that in an uncontrolled way and, and risk the more serious com uh, complications. And then the other indication I would say is concurrent hemodynamic compromise from either a pneumothorax or other cause. So this patient was intubated for respiratory failure eventually. And this is an hour after intubation. And um, although it's hard to tell, this is actually not a pneumothorax. It's a big undrained stomach. But you can see she has massive hyperinflation on the one side, and then she has profound mucus plugging atelectasis on the other side. And I think these are the asthmatics that are the hardest to take care of and are most likely to progress to needing some much higher level of support in the ICU, the ones who have this combination, because you're kind of torturing the left side and not getting much out of the right. She was found to have an auto peep of 30, cent uh, 30 centimeters water. So we'll always take these asthmatics, do an expiratory hold on the ventilator, find out what their auto peep is. You know, this can vary. Even in someone that sounds like they're not exhaling at all, they may have an auto peep as low as six. Someone like this, an auto peep of 30 is the highest I've ever seen. Multiple ventilator strategies were attempted, maximized beta agonist and other bronchodilator therapies, but she had progressive respiratory acidosis. So this would be another one you could think about in the emergency department. You go ahead and intubate this patient, and then an hour after intubation, you get this blood gas. So the first thing you've got to think about is, number one, what's my ventilator strategy? But number two, have I caused some compromise? And in this patient, some time into it, she had developed a very pronounced tension pneumothorax. That was relieved with a chest tube, and inhaled isoflurane was started um, at 1.5 to 2.5%. Rapid improvement in clinical exam, rapid decline in the PCO2s. And I don't know how many of you have had an experience with using an inhalational anesthetic in severe asthma um, or peanut allergies at the time it comes up in the emergency department sometime, but it is just the most profound bronchodilator. And you can just be listening to someone here, absolutely no air movement, and the breaths just come in and they clear. Most people have to stay on it a little while. Um, the problems, of course, that you get hypotension from um, vasodilation and some myocardial depression. And so most patients who are this sick on it require pressors to stay on it. And her anesthetic was discontinued on this case after three hours. So just a little bit about pathophysiology in this case. There's airway inflammation, which as time goes on, I think most experts believe is the primary problem. So there's inflammatory uh, cell influx and edema. And really the only therapy that we're aggressively using in this regard, not that bronchodilators don't help with the inflammatory closing, but is the steroids. There's airway remodeling 
over time, which includes alteration in the size, mass, or number of the tissue components. And so that's why thinking about the chronic asthmatics or the question about how many times they've been in the hospital is relevant. And then the bronchial hyperresponsiveness, which is something that we focused a lot of our therapy on, um, but the relationship between that and inflammation and remodeling is not well understood. And I think you really want to be aggressively treating the inflammation and the hyperresponsiveness. In general, exposure to an allergen leads to recruitment of inflammatory cells to the airway. Concurrently with this, tissue edema and increased mucus production occurs, release of cytokines and chemokines with epithelial cell loss, and then on a chronic basis, this leads to chronic airway remodeling. So what are the goals of ventilation in status asthmaticus? Oxygenation is not usually a problem, and we usually keep these patients fairly well saturated, meaning at least over 90%, as hypoxemia can worsen bronchoconstriction. So as opposed to the patient I'm going to tell you about next, we probably would tend to leave their saturations in the normal level. Controlled hyperventilation and permissive hypercarbia or hypercapnia, depending on which term you like better. So in general, we're, we're never going to ventilate these people to a normal pH. We're going to ventilate them to the pH we pick that we're satisfied with. And for, for me, that would be 7.20 arterial, right? So there's no reason to batter their lungs and make them have a normal pH. We know that even multi-day low pH with, from a PCO2 problem, not a metabolic acidosis, is not damaging to the myocardium. And there are plenty of patients that have sat in um, ICUs for several days with PCO2s in the 90-100 range. Of course, their pH will get better because most of them compensate so quickly. So I think in the acute setting that you put them on the ventilator in the emergency department, you want to just pick a pH and make sure you're not getting worse. Um, and the reason for this is to decrease ventilation-associated lung damage, including barotrauma, air leak, and the risk of pneumothorax. And then the most important part of this is that you really need continued maximal anti-asthma therapy. The in this case, in obstructive airway disease, ventilation is not a treatment for the disease. It's something, it's a last-ditch effort that you're doing just because they're going to stop breathing. But it's, in most cases, not going to make the patient better, and in many cases, they will be worse. And I think the key, the ones that we see are a lot worse, are the ones that we intubate and bag. You know, so there's that kind of, you can't help but right when you get someone intubated, especially if they've stopped breathing or had respiratory arrest, you're kind of aggressive with bagging. And so then you get your next gas and it's, you know, 6.920 something. And that's because you haven't given them time to exhale. So, and the other thing is you haven't really helped them. Positive pressure per se is going to do nothing for obstructive airway disease. And I think if you meticulously match their auto peep, you may be able to help stint their airways open to some extent. But that's not something in the acute situation that's going to happen. The other thing I think is worth thinking about if you're going to put them on the ventilators is this whole issue of peak pressure versus plateau pressure. So how much peak pressure is too much? Well, um, in obstructive airway disease, the peak inspiratory pressure that you see on the ventilator is much higher than the plateau pressure. Um, and the plateau pressure is the pressure that's applied to the small airways or the alveoli. This, this is measured on the vent. There's an inspiratory hold on the vents that we all use, right? So you put an inspiratory hold, the vent goes in, it hits the pip, and then, and then it blips right back down to, um, to this uh, plateau pressure. It's often not this fast, of course. Um, so the plateau pressure is really the pressure that the airways see. And in asthma and almost all obstructive diseases, the plateau pressure will be far below the PIP. 
So if you put them on the ventilator and you pick a, you know, well under 10 per kilo tidal volume, you know, and still their PIP is 45, check their plateau pressure. You know, I'm not advocating a PIP of 45, but if their plateau pressure is 20 below that, you may be able to just give your, your therapy a little time to work. I'm going to talk about hypoxemic respiratory failure in a second. In that case, the PIP and plateau pressure are often equal. Um, so what specific ventilator management would we use? We'd always pick a pressure-cycled mode because in pressure-cycled ventilation, for the same amount of tidal volume, you're always going to get a lower peak pressure. So that would be either pressure-regulated volume control, which happens to be a pressure-cycled mode, or pressure control. Low or no PEEP, and then check the patient's auto or intrinsic PEEP. So I think, in general, no PEEP in someone who has a high auto PEEP isn't going to help you. If it's 30, you're not going to put it at that. And I think, in general, then you just pick some moderately low PEEP, unless you see somebody with that kind of an x-ray. Th then you've got to give them some PEEP for that one side. A low ventilatory rate to allow adequate time for expiratory phase. So what I'll often tell people in an outside hospital is, give them a breath, watch the clock, and see when you hear their exhalation go away. Lots of times it's just way too long to set the rate that low. You know, it'll be a baby and they'll be, exhale will take, you know, 10 seconds. They're not going to set it at 6. But it's better if you look at this kind of plateau pressure issue to give them a low rate and a little bit bigger tidal volume than to stack breaths on top of each other. Um, and so most very sick asthmatics, especially in this older age range, are not going to be on a rate above 10 or 12. Maintain good oxygenation and then use permissive hypercapnia. Mine would be pH 7.2. Some people say pH 7.25. Maximize conventional medical management, so continued use of inline albuterol, other beta agonists, anticholinergics. I think in general people think that um, the use of the MDIs once you're ventilated gives better particle um, deposition, but you need to give a lot of puffs. So a 12-year-old can't get four puffs of an MBI, right? They've got to get 10 or something to be anywhere close to the amount you were giving them in, in um, continuous aerosol nabs. Maximize or intravenous terbutaline, the range of use I give again, and really we push that until the heart rate's where you're uncomfortable with it or until they develop, you know, ectopy or something else, chest pain. There certainly are teenagers who develop chest pain with this. Now that chest pain may just be from breathing hard, but you can't feel very good about turning this medicine up if they're sitting with chest pain. Intravenous mag, steroids, and then sedation and neuromuscular blockade I think is critical. Anyone who gets intubated for status asthmaticus in the ER, I just leave them paralyzed until we see them again. You know, there's, we're going to leave them paralyzed at least a day if they've progressed normally. The only people who come off paralysis are ones who we look back at the story and have been in an outside emergency room and really got intubated before they got any asthma therapy. So that we see a fair number of those, and I'm sure you see them pass through where, you know, Basically, there was, initial, there was initial blood gas taken. They probably shouldn't have gotten the blood gas. Everybody panicked and got intubated, and they really hadn't gotten their therapy. And by the time you see them, they don't even have any wheezing. So sedation and neuromuscular blockade. What sedation do you pick? Um, this is one population that I do use ketamine in for intubation and ketamine for their sedation. There are pl plenty of people who would suggest not using morphine because of histamine release. Um, I think the standard things that you use for intubation are probably safe. Um, Atomidate is certainly fine in this, but in this case, the ketamine, since it's actually a direct bronchodilator, is going to provide you a little bit of um, 
kind of extra therapy right at the time of intubation. The negative being that you're going to get more secretions at that time, but if you're you know, going to pick atropine or robinol to give with it, I think it's safe. And then you can, we put most intubated asthmatics on ketamine infusions, and so you can certainly put, give them intermittent ketamine as their sedation with whatever neuromuscular blockade you pick. And then aggressive suctioning and chest percussion therapy for atelectasis and mucus plugging. What are the non-conventional therapies that have come on in asthma? Someone mentioned BiPAP. I think BiPAP has use if it's done appropriately in these patients, especially someone who has an x-ray like this, who has significant hypoxemia and has an element where they've lost one whole lung. So if that lung comes open on BiPAP, you may have a lot more ventilation capability. And I think we're just getting better at using BiPAP. So I would not be averse to trying BiPAP, especially in someone of an age where BiPAP isn't going to increase their panic level. So a teenager like this who comes in, if they're looking like they're really struggling, trying them on a little BiPAP, the question is what PEEP do you pick? Because you don't really know what their PEEP is. So I guess you pick moderate settings and, and try. Um, I, I don't know if this is going to save people who are progressing towards intubation, but maybe if it buys you a couple of hours, your steroids can work. The use of um, pressure support ventilation only, I think, is gaining more and more favor, and it's certainly what we try to do. It's kind of hard if you're the one who intubates the patient because they're, they're um, paralyzed then. And so the theory is you let them wake up from paralysis. I don't know. I've never heard of reversing them. And then very quickly you take away the rate and put them on an astronomical pressure support, like 25. And basically all you're saying is they're going to set their eye time and their eye to E ratio better than I am. And it's almost always true, right? They're, if, they're, if they're not so comatose that they can't breathe, they're going to pick the right rate to exhale. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It's putting it into practice that's a little bit harder. The use of the anesthetic agents is very clearly helpful but fairly you know, late in the course, and I will say, in this hospital, it's incredibly hard to accomplish, even in the ICU when someone's like dying with rising PCO2s, it's hard. We've probably done it four or five times in my 10 years here, and it's really, it's hard to get them over there and get the machine on, and the ventilator's terrible, and so, um, have you guys ever done one in the ER, Chuck? When I was in training, we did two peanut allergies that way who came in an extremis and they brought it right down, but the PICU had its own anesthesia machine and it was on the good ventilator. And so we just brought it down and they were reversed like that. Like they didn't even get intubated, they just got it through the mask. Um, but I don't think it's easy here. Uh, Heliox is gaining growing favor. And I think, I think I may have a slide on Heliox, yeah. ECMO or ECOR is the um, option of last resort, but has been nearly 100% successful because it's pure lung disease, and so it's certainly um, something to try. And then leukotriene receptor blockade is on the horizon. Acute use of the infusions is really, it sounds like, several more years away for pediatrics, um, but certainly something that's aimed at another area of therapy. Heliox is a helium-oxygen gas mixture, which in the combined tanks, here we actually just get helium tanks. It comes as 80-20 or 70-30. We used to really teach that you got absolutely no helium effect if you put it below 70%, but I have more recently been very convinced that you can have helium effects well below 70%. And so if you have someone who's not on a lot of oxygen, say 50% or under, it comes, through the, it comes through the ventilator, and I think the heliox is great. And what about if you have someone who's just working to breathe and on a mask but not on a low oxygen? I think heliox is very worth trying. Having seen it work on the ventilator, I think it could also stave off intubation. 
It's biologically inert. It's probably the only therapy I can think of that we can tell people has really no side effect um, to the, you know, inherent to the gas itself. It's a fourth the density of air and it alters the flow pattern from turbulent to laminar in large airways. It was first described in the 30s as a treatment for asthma, lost favor because it was a small airway disease, and then has recently been pretty significantly revisited. Okay, so now to switch gears a little bit from obstructive airway disease. This is a, oh sorry. Have you ever used nitric on No. I have not ever used nitric on them. I mean most of them, um, I'm trying to think how you might, I, I don't think of them as having really a vascular component, and I don't even know if it's been studied. Over epinephrine? I think terbutaline has a lot better specificity than epinephrine. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not completely beta 2, but it certainly has better specificity. So I think there are less cardiac and other side effects of terbutaline versus any. I mean, I think it's far better than the drugs we've used in the past. I think people still do get tachycardic, and most people who get on a big turb drip get hypotensive, so there's clearly a vasodilatory component. But, I mean, that being said, I think, you know, you're going to be putting fluid in these people anyway. So, I'm a, I'm a big believer in turb, though there are those who think it doesn't really work as well. For intubation or for... Uh-huh. Uh, I think you could if you're sitting, you know, you mean someone who's getting really anxious but whose yeah. CO2 hasn't risen enough to make them feel comfortable yet? Yeah, like a half per kilo. I think that would be fine. I mean, it's, you're, you're sitting there ready to intubate anyway. I think in most of these patients who have a rising PCO2, you may misunderstand how easy it is to tip them over the edge. So anytime, you know, just like these, we'll have these crazy screaming babies with, you know, RSV or something, and we'll give them a little bit of Versed. And, you know, sometimes I've tipped one of those over and made them stop breathing just like that. But as long as you're sitting there ready to intubate anyway, um, you know, a dose that you may think would never do that may push you right over the edge, but it, that's really okay. At least you're pushing them over the edge of the bronchodilator. And I, and I think most of them are, are anxious and using some kind of anxiolytic. Either a low-dose benzo or, or ketamine is a good idea. The problem with ketamine in this age range is that some of them, some kids, as you know from using it probably for procedures, are just so freaked out that you could make them, you could make their anxiety worse. All right, a 10-year-old white male, oh, white male day, day, you can see I changed this to the ER here, um, who presents to the ETC with respiratory distress and a two-day history of fever and malaise. His oxygen stats on admission to the ETC are 55% on room air, and he, he improves to the upper 80s with the addition of 100% non-rebreather face mask. Vital signs are pulse of 162, blood pressure 102 over 38, temp 38.9, respiratory rate 67. What do people think? It's a 10-year-old, yeah. He used to be day 23 post a bone marrow transplant coming to the PICU, but now he's just walking into the <laughs> ER. <laughs> if that gives you any clues about what's wrong with him. <laughs> so what do you think? Yeah, it looks like we're in fairly deep shit. I mean, he's got a really high pulse, he's got a big wide pulse pressure, and a respiratory rate of 67 in someone who's 10, um, plus the fact that you've immediately put him on a non-rebreather and you're still in a, a bad spot for his SATs. So your initial observations, tachypnic, air-hungry, frightened, 
um, moderate intercostal subcostal retractions with intermittent grunting, and your oxygen saturations are 84% on a 100% face mask. Your exam shows coarse inspiratory crackles, bilaterally extending from the bases to the mid-lung fields. He's tachycardic with no murmurs. His distal perfusion shows you bounding pulses and instantaneous cap refill. And there's your VBG, bilateral severe interstitial infiltrates. This actually, this chest x-ray is a little bit farther along, but it would look something like this. So what do you think this patient's diagnosis is? Several, probably. Fran said sepsis. What else? What about from a pulmonary perspective? What diagnosis would you give him? ARDS. ARDS. So he has some kind of hypoxemic respiratory failure. There's so many names for it now. ARDS, acute lung injury. It seems to change in the literature. I think that we can fit all of these, really the ones that have diffuse bilateral infiltrates, into the ones that really just have a progressive pneumonia into the term of hypoxemic respiratory failure. So this is a clinical syndrome of acute lung injury and hypoxemic respiratory failure. Um, in particular to ARDS, it's characterized by severe pulmonary inflammatory response with diffuse bilateral infiltrates and increased permeability of the alveolar capillary membrane. There's development of interstitial or alveolar pulmonary edema. It behaves a little bit different than pulmonary edema you see with acute myocardial failure. And if we talk about ARDS, we think of that as following a primary initiating event. But as you're probably aware, this can vary pretty widely. So you can either have a primary pneumonic event like pneumonia, smoke inhalation, oxygen toxicity, hydrocarbon, aspirations, the drownings, the older drownings often have that, or unrelated to the lungs. So I put near drowning in that category. If they don't have aspiration of water, you can still have ARDS following near drowning. But as you know, in your adult patients, you see it a lot following trauma, much, much less common in the pediatric population. Certainly see it in shock and in sepsis. So what do you need to do now? Who would intubate this patient now, among other things? Yeah, he's orbot what are, what are the other what are the other first things? You've got them on 100% oxygen. You've got to get an IV. Really, there are not a lot of other things you need to do before initiating some kind of positive pressure support. And so here you come to that BiPAP versus intubation crossroads. I think in this patient with the signs of sepsis, it's not a wrong decision to just go straight for intubation. If you don't have any of the hemodynamic issues, I really think we have. Um, gotten more aggressive with BiPAP and we've saved a lot of people with um, bilateral interstitial problems getting intubated. But, but you have to be very aggressive with your initiation of BiPAP and you have to be in an age range that's going to put BiPAP on and wear it reasonably. So if I had this patient even with no um, hemodynamic compromise who was four and had, you know, you know, cardioxygen saturations on 100%, I wouldn't mess around with BiPAP because you're just unlikely to be successful. In a 10-year-old, a teenager, you may well stave off intubation. So BiPAP is a non-invasive mode of delivering positive pressure ventilation via face mask or nose mask. And you know now that you have the options of nose only, nose mouth, or a full face face mask. Um, you set both an inspiratory pressure, which is equivalent to the pressure port on the vent, and an expiratory pressure, or the PEEP. What would the starting numbers be in a big person like this? What I always tell them is, if they're feeling kind of panicked, 
slip it on at you know 12 over 6 or 10 over 5, something kind of low, and then just sit there and talk to the patient and turn up their BiPAP settings. And it wouldn't, I don't think it would be unreasonable to have this person on 25 over 10. You're, you're not going to deliver the pressure anywhere near as well as you would on the vent, right? So 25 as a PIP doesn't seem like a lot of... Uh, doesn't seem like a high pip. So picking something high. But a lot of times you can't just slam that on their face because have you guys ever tried putting on the BiPAP? I mean, it's if you put it on the nose mouth, it is absolutely panicking at first because this peep comes flying in. Ten a peep on the BiPAP is overwhelming. So um, put them on at something low. Give them a little something, recognizing that you may tip them over the edge again. Add oxygen through the circuit. I can't tell you how many times we've seen this exact same scenario in the PICU. We go to BiPAP, they're on high flow O2, RT comes in, slaps the BiPAP on, they crash, and it turns out no one hooked up the O2 to the BiPAP. So just double check that. Be sure your BiPAP oxygen is on high flow, right? This is delivering an enormous flow, and most of the BiPAP machines, I don't know which ones you guys get, but most of the BiPAP machines here don't tell you a percent oxygen. It's a liter flow that's bled into the BiPAP. And so like 15 liters is a good place to start because they're going to have a high minute ventilation. Um, and then the hope is that you're going to provide high flows and allow the patient to escape intubation. The other thing is the flow rate, the flow amount, has to be enough so that they can have this huge minute ventilation. What are indications for intubation? Definitely failure of adequate oxygenation on BiPAP therapy. Um, inability to adequately oxygenate on a patient who can't tolerate BiPAPs, so someone who is either so panicked that you're making them worse, small enough that you can't get the right thing, rising CO2 with maximal medical management, or concurrent hemodynamic compromise. And I think the key in hypoxemic respiratory failure in direct opposition <coughs> excuse me, to obstructive lung disease is that you're going to pick much, much earlier intubation. And you're never, no, no one's ever gonna come back and say, why did you intubate this patient, you know, who's satting 84 and 100%, versus the person with a rising CO2 who's talking to you and not on much oxygen. You've got a real chance to turn them around, that patient, the obstructed patient, the asthmatic patient, you're not gonna help them with positive pressure. This patient, you are gonna immediately make better with positive pressure. So, uh, except for the risk of intubation, there's only pluses to putting them on positive pressure ventilation, either BiPAP or intubation. And the risk of intubation goes up the longer you wait. And so a lot of times, say meningococcal sepsis or pneumococcal sepsis with lung disease, I kind of look at where we are and, you know, you try to get that little moment of pseudo-stabilization where you've got pressors there and you can tolerate the drugs that you want to give for intubation, where you're getting oxygen saturations that are tolerable and say, let's do this now when we're not likely to have a horrible crash at the moment of intubation because that's a, as you know, kind of a big, big moment. What you use to intubate these patients, and I have a different lecture on that, is really a good question and it has been in, in question. What in general would you guys, use, you guys use to intubate someone who appeared septic with hypoxemic respiratory failure? A kid like this. What would be your... Ketamine. Ketamine. And what else? Well, so first has hypotensive effect. What about what, what paralytics would you use? Probably sucks. Sucks. And what about, do you, if you give someone like this ketamine who's this old, do you give them a, um, an anticholinergic? I would. So, yeah. I mean, they're already tachycardic as heck, and they can tolerate that. So I would give them one of the anticholinergics at the time. I think the ketamine, you know, the ketamine is a very 
tough story, and I would pick ketamine in this patient too, but there are multiple ketamine-induced deaths per year in patients who have depleted their endogenous catecholamines. And so the only kind of sepsis patient I pick it in now is one that I feel like there's just this very clear history that they're quite acutely this ill. Right, so let's say I get a patient from another hospital who's been lingering a couple days on some pressors and progresses this, I'd never give them ketamine. And I think that the automatate the, the phobia that has been put in us about sepsis, you know, the whole hydrocortisone, is not borne out to me in a way that I would be afraid to use automatate. And automatate is, you know, ultimately going to be very safe. So I think you pick ketamine if you think it's going to give you a boost. And I think in a lot of hypotensive septic patients who are acutely ill, purpurofulminans, someone who looks like they just got sick, that ketamine is going to be a plus. Someone who's been lingering a couple of days, I think there's a lot more risk that you give them. Um, in, if you give it to someone who has depletion of their endogenous catecholamines, they will have cardiovascular collapse after ketamine. And then I don't pick ketamine in anyone who has heart disease because the effects are very you know, the SVR increase, there's also a PVR increase. So I pick in all of our kind of chronic um, complex congenital population, I stay away from ketamine because I don't, I think the jury's out and I just pick either fentanyl or atomidate in those. Fentanyl for the babies, atomidate for bigger ones. You know, I don't think, oh no, no, I would say less than two months I haven't used atomidate in that because I think you can give them a slow fentanyl anesthetic and be okay. And you also don't come up in this situation for those very often. So the less than two months that you're intubating usually aren't septic and having hypoxemic failure. Yeah. And that's a slow fentanyl anesthetic. You know, give them a couple mics per kilo, watch, a couple mics per kilo, and you're sitting there with your paralytic in case you make them stop breathing. But I, I like ketamine a lot, and I think it has a really good place as long as we're careful with um, the heart disease angle and the issue about your own endogenous stores of catecholamines. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it a lot, and that's who we, what we use to intubate the um, cardiomyopathies, who are literally, like, have no ability to upregulate. And that's the one guy who's with us who's a P's anesthesiologist said he's just never seen it in the cardiomyopathy. So I feel safer with that than anything else. I use 0.3 per kilo. I think 0.15 per kilo, even though you're going to slam your stuff after it and not know. A lot of people, having used that for cardioversion, a lot of people at 0.15 per kilo are not completely asleep. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... 0.3 per kilo, everybody's asleep. It's short-lived. I have yet to have a bad event with it for intubation um, in, in this kind of population. Though I will say, this patient population, I've always picked ketamine. Normal kid who suddenly gets sepsis and respiratory failure. Now, the one who was on this before, who was a post-day 23 post-bone um, marrow transplant, who comes, you know, lingeringly ill, I wouldn't use it in. I would probably use Atomidate in that person. I think it's really critical to get people the word about this whole kind of propofol craze, right? So this is the patient you could definitely kill with propofol. Same with benzos, right? You know, two of Versed could just put you right over the edge and you might never get back. Propofol the same way. Um, so from, I, the from the hypotension aspect, from the, from the dropping of the SVR that there's just no ability to compensate with. And I do think in, the, in a patient like this, if you're, if you're up to sats okay and you've got everything around you, Get your drips there and get a boatload of volume hanging before you give whatever drug you pick. You know, they're just, if they're satting 84 and you've got everything there, having your dopamine and your epi hanging before you push the drugs is a big safety net. Um, 
And so, and it doesn't take very long, right? I mean, that just takes a couple minutes. So what are your goals of ventilation in hypoxemic respiratory failure? In these patients, we really let them, I mean, the trend is to letting them sat lower and lower to minimize oxygen toxicity. Some people in our group would say just keep their sats over 80. Some would say keep sats over 85 or a PO2 greater than 60. But I'm just crazed about getting in there and turning down the oxygen, not letting them sit on 100%. If you look back at the very old literature when we could um, experiment on humans much more freely, they took normal humans and they, um, adults, and they exposed them to 100% oxygen. And within six hours, everybody had chest pain and evidence of interstitial edema on their x-ray. So 100% oxygen is bad. And what is not bad? You know, we arbitrarily say 60, right? So does that mean 80 is still bad? Well, 80 is better than 100. So I think as soon as you can get someone off 100%, especially someone who has ARDS or some kind of acute lung injury process, minimize their oxygen toxicity. Absolutely use permissive hypercapnia. Pick a low pH. Don't worry about their PCO2. Um, and then minimizing their ventilator-associated lung injury. So I'm just going to talk a couple minutes about that. This all comes from an article that's... Um, uh, Noted here later, volume trauma is kind of the, the, newer, the newer thing, believing that there's trauma to the airways from high volume, even if the peak pressure is not over a number that we would say is bad, caused by overdecision of the airway. Barotrauma we've been talking about for years, high pressure induced. Adelectotrauma, I like that one. Repeated recruitment and collapse, right? So that has to do with setting the peep correct and not just sitting someone down there with a bag with no peep and you know, opening and closing the, the alveoli with every breath. And then biotrauma from the release of inflammatory mediators from the injured lung and oxygen toxicity. And so this is the pulmonary pressure volume relationship here where you're really shooting to ventilate the lung in the range between this pressure and this pressure, right? So as you increase the pressure along this pressure curve, there's going to be some inflection point where you really start enhancing the volume. And then you're going to reach an upper point where it's pretty diminishing returns. You're just going to be delivering higher pressure. And so you want to, you want to work on the lung in this range. And that's called um, the right zone, I guess. You don't want to be in the zone of recruitment and derecruitment. You don't want to be in the zone of overdistension. So you set the PEEP somewhere just above that lower inflection point and the PMAX above the upper inflection point. How do you find that in practice? We do it now with the more sophisticated um, flow volume loops on the ventilator. Um, but I think the key is PEEP is a huge plus in this setting. And you know this person's just never going to be on a PEEP of 5. So as soon as you ventilate them, put them on a PEEP of 8 or 10 and get them started opening their lung. Um, and then pick a, t a PIP by picking a low tidal volume that's not going to overdistend them. So what are the specifics? The tidal volume of 4 to 8 mils per kilo. This has really come following the large ARDS trial in adults that showed increased mortality in the people ventilated at higher, higher tidal volumes, completely separate from all other things. So 6 per kilo versus 10 to 12 per kilo, much better outcomes for 6 per kilo. So pick a small tidal volume here. And with our new ventilators, you don't have to account for the tubing, you know, loss in the circuit tubing and stuff. You can just pick a you know, a four or six per kilo tidal volume. Keep their plateau pressure less than 30 or 35. Keep the PIP less than 40. Some people would say if the plateau is not high, it doesn't matter, but I'm nervous about a PIP over 40. Lengthen their inspiratory times, the exact opposite of the management you need in obstructive airway disease. You may need an eye to E of one to one or even inverse ratio ventilation. So the longer you make the eye time, the lower the peak inspiratory pressure, has longer time to deliver the breath.
titrate the PEEP to optimize your recruitment and avoid over distension. And sometimes that takes days of just figuring out in the unit where you're optimized in terms of your lung recruitment. And then the rate is really kind of a byproduct. If you put someone on a six per kilo titivime, what rate do you need to make the pH what you want it? You're not going to be able to put them on a rate of, you know, 10 and have them on a titivime of six per kilo with those lungs. So you may have an adult-sized person on a rate of 25 because you've picked a low uh, tidal volume. Minimize their oxygen toxicity, my specific pet peeve. What are the ancillary therapies? Improve, improve tissue oxygen delivery. If they're this sick, get their hematocrit up to 40. Um, prone positioning has come into significant disfavor. The trials that ruled it out, of course, are all in adults, and I am still a believer that there are pediatric populations that it can help. I definitely think it can buy you a couple of hours if you're trying to stave off ECMO and you think something is getting better. When do we use high-frequency ventilation? I would consider switching to that if the FiO2 is in the 0.8 to 1 range on aggressive ventilation management and the PIP or really the plateau pressure is over 35. Inhaled nitric oxide we've used a lot of. It's been studied aggressively, has been shown to have no benefit in a case-controlled study. We still tend to put people on it um, if we think we're really going down the tubes. But I am, you know, I kind of think if someone suggests it, uh, the resident or fellow, they're welcome to put them on it. I, I, I'm not a believer and I don't think it hurts except for the cost. Surfactant in very specific situations can have a big role. So certainly all the hydrocarbon ingestions, the drowning water intoxications, some of those people, that should be something we're thinking about very early because that can really turn you around. The hydrocarbons more than anything. Um, and then ECMO for ARDS, of course, as a last resort. I'll put these in for you guys to think about. We talk about the oxygenation index and the alveolar arterial, arterial gradient a lot. Um, and they, there used to be good papers before ECMO correlating them with mortality. Um, uh, but now, of course, we can stave off that to some significant extent. So one last very brief case report that fits in the middle. Six-week-old former 33-week preemie. Probably been seeing a lot of these lately. Presents to the ETC with respiratory distress. Oxygen saturations on admission are 82% on room air. Improves right to 100% with face mask oxygen. Vital signs pulse is 205. Blood pressure 102 over 68, temp uh, 38.7, and respirations 85. What's your level of concern compared to, say, the last person? It's high, but not as high, right? Good response to oxygen. Lots of babies have a heart rate of 200. And to be honest, lots of these babies come in breathing 80s, right? And they're not all going to wind up intubated. So I think the key here is this former preemie who comes in with the snotty bronchiolitis, you know what I mean? Don't be alarmed by your first look, right? Because you can probably make them better. Your physical exam, it's an alert crying infant in moderate respiratory distress, copious nasal secretions. Your lung exam, diffuse expiratory wheezes and crackles throughout both lung fields. Intercostal and subcostal retractions and grunting are present tachycardic without murmurs and well perfused. So what is and are the possible diagnoses for this patient and what are you going to do? First things that you're going to do. So supplemental oxygen which we talked about I establish IV access because if they're, if they're uh, hypoxic and decipitating they're probably not feeding. Right. So IV access, oxygen, What's the other potential life-saving maneuver that, I, that comes out from your physical exam? We have patients transfer from the floor. Oh, suck out their nose. I mean, it's just unbelievable the number of 
Florida PICU transfers that are rescued by a massive su suctioning of their nose. So if you're six weeks old and you're mostly an obligate nose breather and it's completely gummed up with this, we have like had patients who were like on the brink of intubation with high CO2s, suck out massive amounts of snot, and they're laying in there not even on CPAP. So I would encourage you to get someone to suck their nose out. It's just unbelievable to me in this RSV population how much it can change what they look like. Um, so suck out their nose. Oh, sorry. Chest x-ray shows patchy atelectasis, right upper lobe, left lower, hmm, left lower extremity and lingula, <laughs> that's a very complicated patient with hyperinflation of the lung fields. Your P this is a very typical you know, blood gas for these patients, right? We get called from the outside hospital all the time, oh, it's 722-62. You know, what do you do with that? It's definitely not normal. They're breathing in the 80s. Well, most of the time we tell them to intubate them, right? Because we're afraid that we're going to be wrong and they're really progressing. But I would submit that the vast majority of ones that look like that could be sucked out and have a big change. or. They did the blood gas after 15 minutes of the baby screaming, you know, with this wheezy stuff and breathing too fast. So I would provide supplemental oxygen, IV fluids, and NPO. You know, don't let them, a lot of these babies come in, you know, with the mom with the bottle in hand. Aggressive nasal suctioning. What about the steroid question? I would use IV steroids in patients with previous history of asthma or reactive airway disease. As you probably know, there was a paper that came out last year that supposedly definitively said steroids are not of benefit in RSV. I remain not completely convinced of that, but we're trying not to use steroids in RSV and otherwise normal children who don't have any other history. Um, they said it didn't shorten hospital days. Um, it does seem to make them better for a while. Um, and of course, you know, that's probably the intensivist perspective. I always try beta agonist therapy and I always try racemic epi. I think some years the RSV is more um, bronchoconstrictive and there are years that we have kids sitting on continuous NEBs who get better or TURB. There are other years that you give them and it doesn't work. And I think racemic epi the same way. So I always try both of them. What are the indications for positive pressure support? Rising PCO2 after evaluation suctioning, progressive hypoxemia, concurrent hemodynamic compromise, or recurrent apnea. So a lot of these preemies, especially if they have RSV, some years the RSV is incredibly apnea-inducing, even in babies who aren't very sick, right? So it's a central viral effect, they believe. So those babies need positive pressure support. I would say a huge number of them will never see intubation. And nasal CPAP, first of all, makes you clean out the whole nose. Um, and you can put them up to 12 centimeters of water pressure. So anyone other than a tiny preemie in there, Put an NPCPAP tube in, suck them out, and put them on 12, um, and you may stave off intubation. So the final, I think this is the final slide, is will ventilation help? Looking at the obstructive versus hypoxemic, and then the mixed picture in the middle. Remember that in obstructive disease, your intubation and ventilation may worsen your bronchospasm, so maximize your medical therapy first and after intubation and just continued close attention for signs of barotrauma and pneumothorax. And of course, that likelihood is going to be the greatest in that period right after intubation, right? Maybe you write main stem, then maybe that's the bad lung. Hypoxemic respiratory failure, positive pressure should provide immediate improvement, so you have a much lower threshold for intubation and initiation of ventilatory support, and then the use of aggressive pulmonary toilet suctioning and CPT. That's all.